At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 513th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who helps get fruits and vegetables into a network of community support services. We're talking with April Bradham about moving produce through food banks. April is vice president for programs of the Arizona Food Bank and oversees the network members, services, and innovation programs. April holds a BS in business administration from the Sage Colleges in New York and an MBA from Arizona State University. She has worked in operations and supply chain for over 17 years in a variety of industries. April and her team offer food banks logistics and transportation support Plus, they coordinate the Southwest Produce Cooperative, which was started to help with the sharing of produce between food banks in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Welcome to the show today, April. Are you ready to rock? Absolutely. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. And thank you so much for having me, Greg. And oh, you bet. Hello to all of your listeners. So for me, my path was a little different than some people in the in the nonprofit industry. Um, I, as you said, worked in a variety of industries. Most of my background was actually in business, in whether it was banking or retail, supply chain or operations and that kind of work. And it was shortly after I had my daughter, I decided I wanted to shift a little bit, partly for work-life balance, but then also to really leave her a legacy of spending my time mm. and energy mm-hmm. doing something that I felt a lot of passion for, which was serving my community. And food banking kind of stumbled on, and a lot of people in food banking actually say that you kind of ran into it, but it seemed to be a really good mirror with both my background. So food banking, and we can certainly talk about how it all works, but it's kind of a secondary supply chain. So it's sort of moving through food through kind of this other section of the supply chain that maybe is a little more unseen than what we're used to in retail stores. So it was a good fit for some of the skills I'd built over the years, but I also grew up with food insecurity. Both of my parents, small business owners worked extremely hard, but there wasn't always enough money to go to everything. And food is one of those things that tends to be cut when, you know, money doesn't go as far. So I know what it's like to pick up a food box at a food bank. And I know what it's like to pretend you're not hungry at school lunch because you don't have money for Mm -hmm. it. So getting back into kind of supporting people just like we were supported when Mm -hmm. we needed help really meant a lot to me and it meant a lot. And helping to sort of build that connection between the skills I'd build, things I really like to do and enjoy doing, but also helping other people in the community when they're trying to sort of rebuild. Wow. And so you said you wanted to maybe touch on how the food bank system works. Let's go there for a moment because I think that's really important. 
I do too, and I think it's a good it's a good kind of picture to set, and especially because it's a little unique to a lot of other industries because it's really built on a network of organizations that work together, but they're independent organizations. So every state and throughout the country, I'd say there's what's called regional food banks. And four of our members are considered this regional food bank, which would be St. Mary's Food Bank in Phoenix, United Food Bank in Mesa, Community Food Bank in Tucson, and Yuma Community Food Bank in Yuma. And what those four food banks do, while they also provide food directly to clients, they're sort of like big warehouses. So think about distribution centers for a Target or a Walmart or Fry's. They're they're big warehouse and they kind of gather food and resources and then they provide to community partners throughout the whole entire state. So those four food banks help to provide food all over the state through a network of about a thousand partners. And those are going to be school pantries. They might be churches. They might be individual nonprofits, also food banks that just, you know, serve on a a local community level. Um, There's a huge variety there of of who they provide food to. But um, between those four members, we get food everywhere, essentially, throughout the state where it's needed. That kind of tiering helps the reach go further, but it also helps us really align resources. And my organization, which was the Association of Arizona Food Banks, so I might say association a time or two, we're going through a brand change right now to Arizona Food Bank Network. What we do is sort of, I always think about it, standing in between them and helping them work together where it makes sense to combine their resources and combine their efforts and and their energy. And then all of us are, are sort of part of a larger network that's the Feeding America Network which is about 200 organizations and food banks throughout the country. So as we talk about the co-op and things like that, there's some partnership we use there as well. Wow, I had no idea there was such a network throughout the United States for this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a really interesting industry that I... I think I'd be missed to not highlight some pride in Arizona. Um, the, the concept of modern food banking actually started here. St. Mary's Food Bank was one of the first food banks. My association was actually the first um, state partner of Feeding America Network. So we really helped to set the stage for, for what food banking could be and how we could help you know fill that need in our community with people that are just trying to, to really find food and nutrition and meet a basic need when they don't have the funds to do so. Wow, how cool is that? I had heard that the food food bank in the United States was in Arizona. Yeah, yep. It's a it's a really cool cool fact that you know we helped sort of start this momentum, and the founder yeah. of food, um, of St. Mary's also helped found Feeding America. So, kind of that idea of collaboration and working together, even though we're independent organizations, really is something Arizona has been doing for a very long time. Yay! <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, really, the problem that you're addressing is twofold. If I if I see this correctly, problem number one is there's an excess or waste food that gets thrown away, wherever away is. And the other problem is hunger. And you're connecting those Mm -hmm. two, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of what the food bank's mission is in general, obviously, is is to find food to give to people that need it. And to do that as nonprofits, of course, as effectively as possible and as cost effectively as possible. So, you know, we're always looking for where can we get food? And then also, I want to really highlight the idea of healthy food, too, because it's, it's not just getting food to clients. And we want our clients to have the same variety everybody has access to, especially, you know, kids want birthday cakes and things like that. And that's all great. But, you know, the food insecure population really has a disproportionate impact to some of the health problems we really see everywhere. So diabetes, health 
and heart disease, obesity, all of those types of things tend to impact the clients we serve harder than everybody else, partly because when you don't have a lot of money, you're trying to find the cheapest way to fill your stomach, and sometimes that's processed food, which we all Mm -hmm. have some processed food in our diet, but when that becomes your whole diet, that's where the concern is. So part of our mission is not just getting food to our clients, but really trying to give them access to some of that nutritional food that maybe they won't be getting in any other way or any other channel, at least in whatever period of their life they're going through. So finding healthy options is a pretty critical part of our mission, especially for the last few years when, you know, we've really seen an increased need. And also to highlight that a lot of our clients have to choose between food and medicine and what kind of choice is, you know, you're trying to fill one basic need or not. So if we can relieve some of that and make those choices easier for them um, when they're trying to take care of themselves and their family, we want to do that. And then it's also a really great solution to food waste. So as you mentioned, food waste is a pretty significant problem. I don't think that's a secret to anybody, especially your listeners. And, you know, the food banks being sort of the secondary supply chain are the perfect outlet for um, helping to get some of that food to people that need it most. And a lot of the donors that we work with and we're close to, you know, we can really be a pretty significant business solution for them. I don't know anybody growing food that doesn't want to see their food get to somebody, right? Nobody wants to see their food go into the dump. I mean, you know, as a grower, everybody, you want that you're growing that food so it can get eaten. And sometimes whether it's market conditions or the food's, you know, not saleable, quote unquote, but it's perfectly healthy and safe, you know, sometimes that food is ending up in in the waste. And especially here in Arizona with the port in Nogales, we see a lot of food come through there. And if it can't get sold, you know, it ends up in the dump. So we can, you know, save those dumping costs for the business, which is important, you know, to help them save money and be successful. We also, you know, there's tax benefits to donating that food, both federal and state to be able to to get that to people. And we can really minimize how much is going in the dump by going and getting this produce and then moving it through our network to get it to people that need it the most. Yeah. So let's talk about food waste for a minute a little bit deeper. So you mentioned um, something that I've known about for a long time, and that's this flow of food that comes across the border at Nogales. But it's my understanding that unless that food is sold, it doesn't come across the border. So if it doesn't get sold, it sits in semis and rots and they have a an issue with getting rid of it at that point. Have I got the story pretty clear? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty close. It'll come over and some sometimes it will make it all the way over the border and it goes to a produce house where they work on continuing to sell it. But sometimes those sales fall through too, depending on the market mm. conditions. You know, it's a, con- a continuously evolving market as, you know, the food industry is based on consumer demand, like everything else. And so some of the food is at, that gets donated to us might be in a semi that, um, you know, made it over and then it's getting redirected. It could be something that's in a produce house in Nogales, and there's a lot of them, a few hundred, and they are trying to sell it and then they're not able to, or they were planning to sell it and then that sale fell through for whatever reason. And so now they have this product and while, you know, they will continue to to find a home for it, what our goal is, is to work with them to understand that if they get it to us with enough life on it, where we can still get it to a client because it has to go through this whole supply chain, so we need at least a few days, if not more, would be great. But if we have a few days to move it and still get it to a client and it be usable, then we are going to prevent that from going into the dump for them. And we go pick it up from the produce houses, or if it's already on a truck, to your point, they could come and get delivered directly. So there's a 
few different ways that it can kind of come to us. And most of that work, especially in Nogales, is done through the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona, and they actually have a branch in Nogales with a fantastic team that works really hard to connect with the donors and, and help them understand what we do, but then also really provide the service to them and get that food off of their hands as quickly as possible so that they can continue to bring food in and, and keep doing their jobs. Wow. So that's probably a significant amount of food that you get into your program, right? Yeah, it is really significant. And, you know, the growth of that really started about three years ago. We were always, um, we evolved from a gleaning program. So Arizona um, had an Arizona statewide gleaning program, which was a program of, of my organization. And that was really us collectively agreeing to sort of share food between food banks. So food banks would work with their local donors. And if it had to be gleaned, we would find ways to do that. And then, you know, if it was more than that particular food bank could handle, we would share it with each other. And we, we've been doing that for, for quite some time. And it was about three years ago, Community Food Bank and St. Mary's got together and realized there was this huge opportunity in Nogales specifically to help solve this food waste problem and also get a lot more healthy food. With that partnership, we all kind of got together and said, okay, so if it comes, what do we do with it and how do we handle it? And it came for sure, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, developing that team. So we went from you know, maybe 300 truckloads. And when I talk truckloads, I'm talking semi 53 foot truckloads, about 300 a year, we would share produce between each other. So the last three years, it's been over 900. Whoa. And at our peak, peak year, over 1100 truckloads of produce and fresh, perfectly healthy produce that yeah. um, we had to kind of find homes for. So Nogales gets served first, local community does, then Southern Arizona, then all of Arizona, and then we'll work with national partners to move through it. But a large percentage of that will come from that Nogales port yeah. and those donors down there. And then also we have very generous donors in Yuma and Maricopa County, and they all contribute to that pool as well. I was going to ask you, so where else the food comes from? And this is unprocessed fresh produce that we're talking about, right? A lot of it, it might be processed or it might be unprocessed depending on the channel it's coming from. So if it's coming from a produce house in Nogales, often it will be processed because it was supposed to go to a retail store, ideally. But some sometimes we get to uh, unprocessed, like big bulk bins of lettuce um, and, you know, heads of lettuce and that kind of stuff, which we can handle that as well. We've seen big, big bins of beets and all of those types of things, dates, you know, from Yuma and La Paz, that area. Yuma, one of the largest lettuce growers oh, in the yes. whole country, especially mm-hmm. during the winter. Yep. We're a great channel for for that. So depending on, you know, at what point in the process that produce gets donated to us, if it's right out of the ground or if it was already packaged and then just didn't get sold, we'll, we'll take all of it. We'll mm-hmm. take any of it. But Yuma's, Yuma's the second biggest contributor next to the Nogales port. And then right after that would be some of the really great donors we have up in Maricopa County area that St. Mary's Food Banks works with. And then all of the individual food banks also get produce from obviously small growers and all sorts of growers of all sizes. Mm -hmm. So this is food just coming from the grower network. Do you get food Mm -hmm. from elsewhere? Yes, absolutely. So there's a couple other channels that are pretty big, you know, contributors of food to, to our supply chain. That's a big chunk of the fresh produce, I'd say. Um, food banks will also do purchasing of produce, especially for specific programs like backpack programs for kids or, you know, meal programs. They might they might do some buying of food. That's a, that's a much smaller percentage. Obviously, we're nonprofits, but that does happen. We also get a lot of great donations from wholesalers and retailers, whether that's directly from like stores, like 
like that we go pick up from retail rescue or distribution centers. And then we also get government commodities. So we, uh, the emergency food assistance program through the USDA, we get um, a lot of great healthy food. And right now we're getting a lot of food from trade mitigation funds. That includes, you know, a lot of, you know, rice and peanut butter, but it occasionally includes some protein like pork or chickens wow. um, and that kind of thing. So we sort of get a, a stream of food from as many sources as possible. And that's really a goal of, of food banks is to kind of diversify where you're getting your food from as much as you can so that if, if one of those dries up for any reason, you still have a lot of um, options to be able to get food to clients. Wow, cool. So that's, we've been talking now for almost 16 minutes about the food production side. Let's flip over and talk about the impact that you're making with the people that are hungry. Absolutely. You know, that's and why we do what we do, right? So, right. You know, the the food that we're getting, and especially the healthy food, is not something everybody has access to, and especially if we are able to get some protein or things like that. And so the clients, you know, throughout the whole entire state, you know, we're serving up to 450,000 people a month. Wow. So there's a lot of need in Arizona, um, and we hold some of the, the areas that have the highest levels of food insecurity, like Navajo County and Apache County. So getting food to those folks is pretty critical. Um, One thing that I think is really great to emphasize is, you know, we're a piece of the solution for them. So when we give them a food box, ideally that food box and that produce is about a three to five day supply. So it's not something that's going to be, you know, ongoing, something that they can live off of. So there's other things that they they do to support, whether it's like the um, supplemental nutrition program or just formerly food stamps or other like free and reduced meal programs with schools. But we do serve kind of that gap of, okay, I need food today. Where do I get it from? And so this produce and all of the other food we're able to give really helps kind of stabilize them temporarily so that they maybe are a little bit more out of crisis mode of I just need to get this need met because we don't know what it feels like hungry and it's not a good place to be if you don't know where your food's coming from and helps them kind of find other options and what else they're doing. So that's a pretty big impact. The produce specifically, I think, is is a really critical piece because we've gotten stories of, you know, there was a, when we started this program and really focusing on this, a client I remember from United Food Bank, I got a story sent back to us of, you know, she had diabetes and she'd been struggling with her weight and because the produce we were getting, she was able to really start losing weight and getting on the diet that her doctors have, have wanted. Obviously, when we get the amounts of food I was talking about, it's not just Arizona we serve and you mentioned, you know, New Mexico. Mexico and Texas are both part of our co-op now, but we'll send food throughout the nation. So there's only so many truckloads of melons, for example, we can handle in Arizona at once. So finding other outlets after we know that Arizona has everything they need is really important to us. And we've sent food last year, I think, to 21 states of produce. And and there's a story of Indiana when we first sent our first truckload of tomatoes there. There's, I have a picture of a client who was so excited to have access to a tomato that she was eating it like an apple standing in the parking lot Hmm. and so excited to be able to to get something like that. That sometimes, you know, it's easy to take for granted that we can just go to the store and buy it. That's not an option for everybody. So, you know, the food goes a long way in both helping to stabilize people's diets and then also help them, you know, start getting Getting those needs met so they can move forward. But the, the need's pretty significant throughout the state, throughout the country, and even with a better economy and 
and everything that's happening, there's still a lot of people who are struggling to kind of make those ends meet. And that's where we really come in and help them. Wow. The story that you've been sharing for the past 20 minutes has moved me. It's like you are doing incredible work. And I just, I really want to thank you for that. Absolutely. You know, it's a collective effort. And I think one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of, like I said, in Arizona, you know, we like this, this co-op that we've created, it's Mm -hmm. really a group of organizations that are working together like they're one. And that's pretty rare in a lot of places and a lot of industries. You know, we make daily decisions. We, we have a fleet of trailers and, and transportation that both my organization, St. Mary's Community Food Bank, we all kind of contribute to. And we have like up to 15 drivers and sometimes up to 50 semi-trailers that we're managing like it's one fleet, even though it's coming from all these different organizations. And we, we do that in a way that is actually unique even in the food bank network um, to kind of have that consensus and collaboration where we act, kind of operate as one, even though we're independent. And and that just goes to, to speak to the, I'd say the goodwill in the food bank network of, you know, we're all just trying to do the best we can for every client and a client hungry in Nogales matters as much as, you know, a kid that's hungry in Mojave County to, you know, a family that's struggling in New York. They all matter to us. So it's just about, you know, how far and how much can we do to reach all of them. Mm -hmm. And that's the Southwest Produce Cooperative. Right. Yep. And it's not an official organization, so it's kind of a program that we all sort of came together and started developing, and we have policies around and processes around to really operate how do we handle this food and how do we get it as far as we can and as quick as we can. So, you know, sometimes we only have three to four days to move a load and get it all the way to a client. So how do we do that and where does it go? And and that's part of the cooperative's work is really figuring out how do we get it, who needs it, and then how do we get it there? So getting the Southwest Produce Cooperative started, how did that happen? Because this collaboration, I'm a big, big fan of collaboration and we have to work together, especially in the food arena, to make food happen. How did this happen? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that it's one, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like the more we all work together, the further it all goes. And, you know, our, cause our interest is both serving our clients, but also supporting the food system and our local donors and, you know, all of that. It's really important that we make the most of this. So the cooperative sort of evolved from, um, as I'd mentioned, we had a statewide cleaning program where we had always kind of helped move food between food banks. And a lot of that was done through our, the associations, two drivers that we had at the time and trailers. And, you know, it would be, there might be food in, you know, Phoenix and we move it to community food bank because they, they used all they could for their, their agencies and supporting. So when we decided that there was a lot more opportunity in Arizona and, you know, as hunger relief organizations. We have to, again, get access to food wherever we can. When we realized there was a lot of opportunity in Arizona from both the Nogales port, but also, you know, we grow a lot of food here and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of food that, you know, doesn't necessarily get all the way to people. And if we can be a solution there, we want to be. So when we decided to really, you know, prioritize that and the food banks, within Arizona decided they really wanted to prioritize that, we realized we really needed some more formal processes and organization around this. So instead of just like an email of, hey, I've got, you know, one load of lettuce to share, we really needed some systems and some processes and really that that transportation and logistics support. So the um, Southwest Cooperative really came out of um, operational teams from 
the four regional food banks here and the association coming together and saying, okay, let's figure out what resources everybody can contribute, whether it's food from donors in your area or it's transportation or it's this, what can you contribute? And let's really formalize us agreeing to work together. And that's how the co-op essentially started was us going, okay, everybody's going to kind of give what they can. And for some, like United Food Bank, it's a, we call them when we really need space and try to figure out how we can get some space for like the Nogales team. It's providing as much food as they can to all of us. And it's, it's a little different for each of our organizations, depending on our resources and our abilities. But it was really, let's make the most of what everybody can contribute. And with that, you know, we were able to in- increase our reach and really increase not just serving Arizona, but we could say yes if we had one donor that had 25 truckloads of tomatoes that had to be moved in four days. It was like, okay, well, (laughs) we can't only move that so quick in Arizona. So let's increase our reach and let's go into other states and get partners in other states to help us with that. So we work with a lot of the states close by, New Mexico and El Paso, again, being formal members of the co-op, but we work with State Association in California, food banks in Nevada, and then the Feeding America team and the whole network there to really increase that reach. So formalizing the co-op was part of us saying, yes, this is a thing and we're going to do this formally and we're all going to put in what we can and then we're going to be able to really increase kind of our efficiencies, our transportation. And when we do have times of more produce than we can handle, we've got ways to handle that. Wow. Congratulations. You are doing extraordinary work. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's so, something I love. We all love. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Our governor, Governor Ducey, announced something recently. Tell me about that because that's pretty revolutionary when it's coming from the government, I think. Yeah, it's something we're really excited about. We have been working with Governor Ducey and our food bank members and here at the association kind of trying to come up with a plan to say, how do we really start kind of expanding this work? Obviously, you know, we're very grateful for all the donations we get, but we know that there's still opportunity and there's still a lot of work to be done. So what he had announced was um, they've agreed to support our starting of a pilot of a new program that we're calling Friends of the Farm. And the goal of Friends of the Farm is really to take some funding that we're able to find and get and the governor's agreed to, su- to support to really try to bolster some of the small and mid-sized farms and provide some kind of stability of food purchasing there to be able to support them. And like I said, you know, our farming community we know is so critical and we want to support their success. And then also it benefits the food bank network with a large amount of variety that maybe we don't currently have or aren't able to get and really help build some of those local partnerships between our goal ultimately will be to build those local partnerships between local food banks and local farms so that we can continue to strengthen some of the work we've done on on kind of the bigger statewide scale and really help drill that down and continue to get more and more local. Wow. Awesome work. Thank you so much for all of it that you do. Oh, absolutely happy to do it. You know, we're really excited about this, and we're in the very beginning stages of planning. As you said, it, it's it's just recently been announced. So, we're you know, anytime you build a new program, it's okay. Let's let's get all the details out and all the hows. But the whole network is really excited about it, and we hope a lot of our partnerships and the farms are going to be really excited about it as well. Cool. I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you learned from it. Such a good question because I feel like we all fail every day right? in something in some way, right? Yeah, it's kind of an, an ongoing part of living, right? 
But I'll share something that actually maybe many of your listeners can kind of relate to, and I wouldn't say I've overcame it, but I'm certainly determined to, is I am a terrible Arizona gardener. So I've actually tried for now many years to sort of grow food here. And while I've had some minimal success, and definitely bunnies in my backyard have not helped um, (laughs) that at all, I just have not been good. I'm originally from upstate New York, so I was much better at growing food in that kind of environment. So, you know, I do do have a couple of your fruit trees, Greg, and they're doing pretty good. So I'm getting there slowly but surely. But I would say that's something that, you know, it goes to, to the to the mindset of, you know, it's something I really want to do. And I know the value and the rewarding of doing it. But I, I just haven't figured it out entirely yet. So I'm determined to persevere through that. And actually starting this spring, in addition, I'm going to be moving. So I've, I'm going to have a little patio to try to do some like patio growing and start nice. a little bit smaller and, and see what I can do there and then sort of continue to evolve that with, you know, trying to continue to learn how to how to manage the climate and the sun and all the different factors here that I wasn't so used to. Excellent. Well, for, for, so for starters, growing food is one great big grand experiment. And I can share <laughs> everything that I know. I've been growing food here for 45 years in, in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And I'm always learning. So, you know, you're in the right place about the learning part. One of the things that I might suggest for those of you in the low desert or any desert areas, go to plantingcalendar.org and download our planting calendar because one of the big mistakes that people make is they plant the wrong thing at the wrong time. So That's a great suggestion. I'm yeah. glad you said that. I'm writing that down. <laughs> yeah, plantingcalendar.org. You have to make sure that you plant the right plant in the right season. I was just recently talking to a gentleman who planted cucumbers in September, and that's the wrong time to be planting cucumbers in the low desert. You want to plant them in April or May. And, and you know, he said they've grown all of about two inches in two months. Should I pull them out? I said, well, yeah, that's probably a good idea. So yay for keeping. Wonderful. Yeah. That's a great suggestion. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. It, you know, and growing food different places is very different. You know, you come to the desert Southwest from the Midwest and it's a different game. So you have to learn, learn where you're at, how to grow. So, mm-hmm. and often, Absolutely. often the cooperative extension, if you're not in the desert Southwest, obviously come and see us at Urban Farm. But if you're not in the desert Southwest, the cooperative extension is a great resource for growing food locally. Great suggestions. Yeah, I'm determined. I will figure this out. <laughs> nice. Um, but it's something that I've really struggled with out here. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm super determined. Obviously, I have a lot of passion for healthy food and continuing to contribute to that. So I think it's it's a it's a critical thing in my life. I just need to need to figure it out. Nice. Well just don't give up. That's the thing. So what do you consider your biggest success? That's a great question. I always I see success just as I see failure. It's an ever evolving, right? And our lives are that. And I would say, you know, just I, I would say my life in general, like being able to do what I love to do and be in service to our community and do something that I feel I'm good at and I'm passionate about, but then also be able to support my daughter and be able to give her the life I want to give her and being able to find that balance I know is is really hard. And that's not something that necessarily comes easy or everybody has been able to necessarily find in their life. And I feel really grateful. And I think that, you know, I'm very, very grateful for all the people that helped me along the way and, and being able to get to this place where I can do this work, but still support my daughter and kind of break some of the cycle of struggling that I grew up with. So I think that for me in general, I'm just, I consider that all plenty of success. 
I may never get rich in nonprofits, but it's well worth the work I do. Yeah. Amen to that. And I, and I could feel the gratitude that you have and mm-hmm. that's extraordinary. No, I think that that's, that's part of what, you know, makes life worth living is feeling grateful for everything we have one way or another. Amen to that again. What drives you? Yeah. I've already mentioned, you know, that, that, Serving my community has always been something that I am really passionate about. Like I want to wake up every morning knowing that, you know, I'm I'm going to do something that's going to help benefit at least one person and go to bed every night knowing that maybe I made a difference somewhere along the way. And I'm also a really big problem solver in supply chain and logistics and what I do. I mean, it's just one big problem and puzzle to solve every right. day and the things that come up. And, and so I think kind of, you know, for me, it's being able to to help others and really solve problems and make things better and improve things is really, really what fulfills me at the end Mm -hmm. of the day. Nice. And I can, in 35 minutes of talking with you, I can hear that in your (laughs) essence. So congratulations. Thank you. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? So I'm going to say a book, actually, I just finished reading for the second time. And it's one of those books that I think probably over the course of my life, I'll refer to often. And, you know, some of your listeners may have already read it, but a couple of years ago, a book came out by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu called The Book of Joy. And it's a really brilliant book about, you know, kind of reframing perspective and how these two very, very humble gentlemen who do incredible things in the world really manage through some of the challenges they faced and the, what they've struggled with in, in their own lives and really worked through that to find joy, which is really what we're all looking for, I think. Mm, yeah. um, so I think it's a powerful, powerful book to, to kind of refer to. And, and it's, you know, a lot funny and lighthearted and just something that really brings a lot of inspiration to me. So I hope it would do that for others. Sweet. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Hmm, goodness. So, I mean, I guess off the theme, I'll just keep going. You know, I, I I really just think everybody, my advice would be to fill your days and your hours as much as possible, whether it be hobbies or your work or family with things that you feel passionate about and things that you love because passionate people is what change the world. So we can all do that in our own way with whatever things drive us. And if you can fill as much of your time as possible with those types of things, it makes a difference to everybody around you. Wow. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, April. Thank you for having me, Greg. It's been a lot of fun. So how can our listeners find you and get a hold of you? So the best way would either be my email, which is april at azfoodbanks.org, or welcome to visit our website, azfoodbanks.org. It's uh, got lots of information on there about not just the work we do, but the food bank network. And one thing that I should mention is that if anybody is looking for a food bank close to them, whether it's to donate food or, you know, somebody that needs to find a food box, we do have a directory there where you can just put in your zip code and find the closest ones to you. So it's a good resource for not just finding me, but if you want to find more information about who in your community is doing this work, that's a great way to find that. Excellent. 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 You can also find show notes from today's podcast at Urban farm.org forward slash AZ food bank. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.